Leo Varadkar, Mr. Tato, Frostbit Boy. Your boys took one hell of a beating. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly, brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Uh, Gavin Casey here and joining me to look ahead to what will hopefully be a far better weekend for Irish Rugby, at least on a senior level, is Murray Kinsella of the 42.ie. How are you, Murray? I'm very good, Gavin. How are you? Um, atrocious, thank you. And we're delighted as well to be joined on the line all the way from Belo Horizonte in Brazil by Mr. Ewan McKenna. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> Don't turn us off. Oh, we're joined in studio by Bernard Jackman. How are you, Bernard? Very good, thank you. Great to have you here. Thank you. Uh, Lance, <laughs> the teams are out. We'll start with some of the... Um, well, I don't know if it's positive or negative, really, but at least it's not um, a, a, a dissection or an autopsy. Uh, although it kind of is, based on some of the injuries, in a way. Um, so what are we looking at? Rob Carney comes in at 15. Robbie Henshaw uh, ruled out. That means Chris Farrell comes in at 13, where Henshaw was going to start. Um, it's a fresh-looking back row with Sean O'Brien and Jack Conan's inclusions and Quinn Rue partners James Ryan at lock Murray your reaction to the team yeah I guess largely long expected lines obviously the Chris Farrell um, development only came out this morning a bit of a late excitement and really exciting opportunity for him uh, the last time he started in a Six Nations game of course he was man of the match during the Grand Slam run against Wales picked up an injury just after that game unfortunately for him uh, and has been biding his time through those frustrations of injury he's uh, a really powerful centre we know he can uh, distribute as well so it's going to be exciting to see him team up with Bundiaki I think the back row as well there's more ball carrying power in there isn't there mm. which was an issue last week against against the English Sean O'Brien and Jack Conan are going to bring that dynamism uh, as well as that work rate to the carry Quinn Rue in for Devon Toner I guess is a case of the, the next in the depth chart um, Ulton Delan will obviously be disappointed but I think the, the combination of Rue and Ryan really makes sense with his size, with his scrummaging power. He's going to call the line out along with Peter O'Mani, according to Joe Smith, but I'd say he'll take on that responsibility as well. So, yeah, a lot of long expected lines. And given the fact that there are quite a few injuries now at this stage, it's still a, a pretty good looking Irish team. Yeah, Bernard, your thoughts on the guys coming in there, maybe starting with the back row, um, well, combination as such of O'Brien and Conan, as Murray points out. Uh, probably a little bit more oomph in possession. Um, and I suppose, based on what we saw last weekend, we actually need that. Yeah, I thought Sean, you know, it was difficult when he came on, but I thought he showed um, he was more likely to break, to make line breaks than anybody else. He showed, you know, nice footwork um, and just evading that first contact. Um, I thought he might have played at eight if, you know, um, if Joe was going to go down a different route. But um, I think it's, it does beef up for back row having him Jack Conan in there as as ball carriers you know Peter Manny that's not his you know the main part of his game is more the other side of the ball and, and um, obviously his line out prowess but with Jack and, and Sean O'Brien in there and Quinn Root to be honest as well what we'll, you know, we'll obviously lose some line out um, intelligence but we'll get power and uh, you know, I think that's the only that's the only way to play against uh, Scotland. I mean, we this isn't a game to get loose. Um, this is a game to get back on track with our, our traditional game plan and um, look to really impose ourselves physically and do what England did to us. To be honest, I think that's that's what England did to us is our game plan. Um, that's been very successful for us, and we just need to get back to basics. And I think the changes in personnel. CJ has looked while he's unbelievably honest and, and he works really hard. I f- I feel he's lacked a little bit of power. In, in his carries um, over the last six, seven months and uh, maybe this break, enforced break would be a good thing for him by the time the World Cup comes around because he obviously is a class class operator but it does give Conan a chance to come in and really stamp his, his authority on, on an eight jersey at international level. Uh, when you mentioned standard there maybe lacking that little bit of power I might open this to the two of you is there anything that juts out as um as a reason for that or a cause for that is it just maybe a bit of wear and tear as you mentioned his honesty like he's there week in week out uh, barring injury he carries an absolute mountain of ball like it's there's barely a week goes by where he hasn't carried the most uh, number of balls but what does it come down to then that maybe slight decline in form with ball in hand yeah I think um, well, first Murray but I, I think that what Ireland have probably lost a little bit um well, at the, at the weekend certainly was um, that animation around the ball carrier. So it's pretty obvious CJ Stanner gets the ball that he's not going to pass. Or, you know, um, so it was very easy for England to get double hits on him. Um, but that seems to be the case, you know, for Munster a little bit as well. You know, he just sees himself as as, as being a recycler, you know, and... Uh, 
and that makes it easier for the defence then they can they can target you as I said with two and three man hits um, which obviously negates his, his ability to get you know really good gain lines um, but it's testament to him he hardly ever turns the ball over you know so he's getting hit two men all the time I think this rest will be good for him he hasn't had a big injury from what I can remember um, for a while so he's played he's a go-to man for Ireland and, and Munster and has been for um, for quite a while now and this this break whether it's four weeks five weeks um, would be a good thing for him and, and Ireland by the time the World Cup comes around mm. I think it's an issue for all the ball carriers in the, in the forward pack James Ryan was talking about it the other day as Bernard mentions that animation even a viable tip on option someone who's actually alive with their hands up even or another extra step so they can get a bit of aggression into their what might be a decoy run Johnny Sexton or whichever back it is out behind them hands up making a little dart of run even if they're going to carry it just makes life tougher for that especially if it's a tight five forward in the defensive line to make that decision. But yeah, CJ was less effective. I think it was 36% of his carries were gain line, which was the lowest of the Irish pack, even on a bad day for them in that in that area. But simple things like him, he used to, he's always been so good at, with those like tools of carrying. Now he's kind of tucking into one arm. He doesn't have that change up, that late burst of acceleration to either side of the defender, maybe that fend as well at times. So those little details are probably a little bit off, not only for him, but for the Irish pack as a whole, I would have said. I think it'll be interesting. I think also our shape kind of helped England to a certain extent. Um, if you think we we played the 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 wraparound off a of forward with an inside loop a couple of times, England read it. Um, we look back at the Courtney Laws where he you know he jumped out of line and hit ring rows. If you look at the the, the lead runner, the, the heart, the forward who's in front there, you know they weren't respecting England weren't respecting that forward, so um, they were able to push off quite easily. Uh, and I think Joe Schmidt will look, be looking to address that to make sure um, that everybody's an option. Um, and that used to be an unbelievable strong part of our game. Um, and it's only based on one game, but I thought we we lost that a little bit. And you know we tried to tip on to um, to James Ryan early. He knocked it on, and then we kind of became even more one-dimensional, where we needed to actually, you know, keep pushing, um, pushing the boundaries there, and testing England and shifting the point of contact. But I felt because we made a couple of errors, handling errors early, our forwards became more paranoid about throwing that extra pass or uh, even calling for an extra pass, and it actually fed into um, England's strength because then we just became one out. Mm, and that lack of energy, like you mentioned, that the the examples of the good English reads, like there was one stage where Carl Sinclair. I think it was in midfield, like a perfect opportunity to exploit a defender in the defensive line. He ends up making that beautiful read around that front door runner and swallowing up. I can't remember which back it was, but it was just it was a little bit too easy for the English defence, albeit a brilliant performance from them. They they brought so much energy, their spacing was brilliant, the line speed was was really aggressive. So there's loads of little details for Ireland to work on. Yeah, and all of these factors, I suppose, are interlinked to some extent. Uh, clearly and conspicuously, Ireland lost a gain line battle um, and much of what you touched upon there I think would have contributed to that is there anything else that stands out as cause for Ireland just really not uh, getting over that line uh, versus what England were able to do it was interesting that the set piece didn't really get them the kind of gain line or the kind of early inroads that it usually does um, like under Joe Schmidt that's been such an area of strength we saw England actually uh, striking really well off set piece obviously starting with that first line out where the ball's in touch for 10 seconds over the top simple thing to two laggy gets a one-on-one carry and away they go Ireland didn't really manage to get that a whole lot even something that stands out is Robbie Henshaw getting tackled by Henry Slade and the, and the ball goes to deck off a, off a really good scrum platform where generally Ireland would have got either territory or a good 20-15 metre, metre carry so I think those areas are, again like that's an element of their accuracy they've been talking about it all week the players that needs to be sharpened up and that will therefore allow them to get into better positions for that phase play to, to come into play. Yeah, I think um, I think our scrum was, was rock solid and obviously that was when we when we launched backline attack we were very inaccurate. I mean that's uh, when have you seen Ireland either not either not get territory there. The score was 17-13 it was the 56 minutes you know we've a uh, an opportunity. The way England defended, they only had um, their wings were high. There was only a fullback in play in the backfield. I, I felt if we had got down there then and, and built a bit of territorial pressure, we actually could have won the game despite mm. all the the collision dominance they had. I mean, um, the game was still in the we we're still in the contest. Robbie doesn't complete the pass to um, to the wing turnover, and then we had an opportunity when Ringrose from one of the few contestables we actually won back. English defence was a little bit out of shape, and Gary had a chance to hit Johnny. Uh, we had a four man or we had two man overlap four backs on the outside and he tucked and carried in the midfield and lost in contact and from that scrum they score um, which is very unusual for us I thought they put massive pressure on our line out we, like the, only, the only if you look if you remember the game live 
the probably the high-profile error was the Rory Best not straight five yards out. But if you look back and see how much ball was disrupted, mm. you know, so technically stat-wise we had the ball, but Conor Murray couldn't do anything with it. It was tapped back on the ground or flooding through, and that that just made it very difficult to generate anything. Whereas Ireland rely massively on their set piece launch to get go forward. So we did, they took that away from us, and we were never going to get it on rook uh, on phase seven eight because you know for us we if we don't get over the gain line quickly, um, and it's a mirror image of the England's first score from the try. You know they threw the quick line out over the top. They got over the gain line from the start, and then with their power, it was nearly impossible to to stop them. They were getting go forward every single breakdown, and then two of those phases they had two offloads. Tulagi and Vunipola stayed up in the tackle, um, which didn't meant we couldn't get our defensive line set. So, um, you know that's the, the key. The key against Scotland is is being really accurate from our set piece and being able to launch properly to get the first phase gain line, which will make everything else easy. Yeah, because I don't know. Just after this game, I got. More, the kind of old Irish tweets about why does Conor Murray kick, uh, box kick the ball away and that's exactly what you were talking about there Bernard I, there was one specific example where George Cruz competes with Omani at the front of the line out it gets tapped down and then Toner doesn't get a block on a toje he gets through swarms Murray plays one phase and then has to box kick it away because no, you can't you can't yeah. play off that possession no we did I would actually be critical that we probably played a little bit too much you know in the second half when it was obvious we hadn't any go forward and, and, but because we hadn't regained possession from those box kicks and England were actually coming back at us from them. I think we, we overplayed. Uh, but definitely if you don't, if the ball is messy, Connor has absolutely no choice. And it's, it has been a strength for us, you know, for the last four years, really. Mm. Talk to me about dominant tackles then, lads. I think everybody at home, when they saw it used kind of as an official statistic for the first time, would have had their own interpretation of it. Bernard, from a coach's perspective, is it something that you would talk about often and how would you define it? I think it's 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 either ability to to win. The game. There's two two ways of doing it: this ability to win the gain line, or its ability to slow the opposition ball down. And we failed um, pretty miserably on, on both. Um, listen, I think a lot of it was um, really smart tactical play from England. So they basically Ireland tried to bring a bit of line speed from from defender four, five, and six, but they consistently hit inside the third defender, um, and they had loads of options around that so because because the rook ball was quick Ben Youngs was able to pick up and run a little arc so he was running kind of at the second defender um, and and both wings particularly Nowles was very busy running little options off his shoulder and then they had big forward runners you know coming into the, so they really isolated our third defender um, and because of the way defensive systems work third defender can't rush he has to stay attached to, to one and two um, so I thought it was smart from them Whereas uh, there's, there's different sc- tactical options. So a lot of teams, when they play off nine, um, they try and get that forward carrier running out towards the fourth or fifth defender. Sorry, I'm being a bit technical here. Wow. Um, oh, to go out towards it. the fourth or fifth defender, basically to, to open up the space for a blind side um, and also to, um, to, to cut the defensive line. Whereas they were really happy to go at third defender or inside third defender. Right. Um, which meant we were just the guys on the outside who were four, fifth, sixth defender, if they've got off the line, well they haven't been they haven't made a tackle. Right. So they've had to work back again. And you just you just find yourself um wasting a lot of energy. Um and the guys who can't really get off the line. And they, the Lions did it to New Zealand. Um and sorry, New Zealand did it to the Lions in, in Test One. Um where they weren't New Zealand wouldn't be used to the line speed that and that the Lions brought in New Zealand. But how they counteracted that was they played a they played a huge amount off nine, but very narrow off nine. Uh, if you remember, and played a bit of zigzag where they went right, left, right, left. So the guys with speed and power in the outside channels were, were getting no they were up getting off the line, but the ball was never coming out there. And then eventually we got they got narrow and then they exploited a little bit. In England, they didn't do much zigzag. They kind of went the same way um a lot. But I felt it was very it was very smart tactically um, of taking Ireland's line speed away. And because they had loads of options off nine, it was just so hard to get double hits, you know. Um, whereas if they had played more off ten, um, I think Ireland would have got over the game line more and made the impact tackles. And, um, you know, there's one example I showed you, uh, you know, I clipped it that, you know, Ireland tried to choke tackle, which again could be a momentum swing for us. And George Cruz came in, now probably illegal, but from the side, yeah. absolutely <laughs> the smash Keen Healy. And they got to play the ball. And again, when you try a choke tackle, you know, you've got four or five guys in around that breakdown. If you don't get that ball stopped, 
um, you know, you're you're short elsewhere, and, and that leads to another gain line. Um, and again, we didn't get that psychologically for us trying that, calling it on the field, and then failing in it is a dagger in, in your in your confidence level. So um, England were England were very physical, very smart as well. They weren't just physical; they they were unbelievably well drilled. And I think you know people for some reason Eddie Jones gets a lack of respect from a lot of rugby pundits. He might talk rubbish sometimes um, and play the game in the media, but technically, tactically, he's not far off Joe Schmidt, you know? Um, and I would say in the top, you know, top probably top three in the world, you'd say Wayne Smith, Joe Schmidt, Eddie Jones, um, in terms of having real technical acumen. Mm. And I'll probably underlined again how close... Like Joe's always tried to remind us, you know, we won the Grand Slam, but there are fine margins he always talks about, like Wales, England, New Zealand, probably South Africa now, all of them can beat each other a day. Interesting about the defence, I want to get your thoughts on, um, Joe Schmidt mentioned after the game, we didn't get a single breakdown turnover. I think Peter Romani did actually get one, but England instantly got the ball back. But it's been a bit of a trend, like looking back at the last year's Six Nations, Ireland were bottom of the jackal turnovers charts, you know, France at 27, they were top, Ireland all the way down on nine. Now obviously the amount of possession Ireland have feeds into that. But even relatively speaking, Wales, in comparison, say France, have far fewer turnovers. So there's obviously a, a philosophical or tactical element yeah. to it. Um, what's your sense on that with Ireland? Is it because Andy Farrell's looking for so much line speed that they're making greater demands on the back row to be very selective with going into that breakdown? Yeah, they are. I think um, for sure they are. But um, I think England, England last year, if... Uh, I was at a conference Eddie Jones spoke about spoke at in, at the end of May, and you know he he was asked about where they've dropped off and where why Ireland are are I suppose winning won a Grand Slam whereas they obviously won the Six Nations the year before. And he spoke about how Ireland uh, were were better than them at the breakdown. You know, and it's interesting. Last week he said, "Oh, the game we won in the air and on the ground." They were the two things he said. Now, I think they won it on their feet as well. But, you know, they won it in the air, which has always been a, a, a strength for, for us. Um, and they, they their breakdown work, 88 out of 88 attacking recycles won. Um, and obviously winning turnover on our ball. I mean, that's... you Whatever about us, about us not being good on their ball. But for us to, to lose, I think it was five turnovers. Um, it's unheard of. Unheard right? of. You know, it's unheard of, but it came from their pressure and their um, their breakdown work. Mitchell has taken on the breakdown for um, for England, and it's been a massive part of every camp. So I, I know the, the the head of fitness for for England, and um, you know, effectively, they've spent a lot more time technical and tactical work than they had for the last two years. Mm. You know, Eddie Jones we came in first, got him really fit. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. that before. Yeah, but. This there's been a massive shift now. I think he feels okay. That that hard, obviously it'll do a big preseason for the World Cup, but I think he now feels okay. I've got that element built in. Boys are fit enough to play, work hard. They know what's expected of them in terms of work rate. But now let's actually start to build our game plan for the Six Nations and the World Cup. And you know Mitchell coming in, Kiwis are have always been world leaders at the breakdown. I thought England looked much better. You know, at that, and there's some of it's around their attack, but much better in terms of technique. Um, and we just looked a little bit off, you know. And I think Andy Farrell obviously wants people on their feet, um, but for Peter Manny, you know, who's probably our best jackler, Rory Best, not to get a sniff of a breakdown is is very unusual. And credit to them, you know, we can't just blame. We have to accept that they actually came yeah. here with a with a very smart plan. Murray, you got some very interesting answers out of Keith Earls talking to him about wing defence. Yeah, again, this is one I'd be interested to hear Bernard's thoughts on. Um, because obviously the way the game has changed, there's pretty much 13 or 14 in every defensive line now at the moment. Everyone's got a really aggressive line speed. They've got numbers on their feet. The wings are generally high up the pitch. It's been one of the big transformations in the last few years in the game. Um, you know, I, I can think back even relatively recently where you'd have a back three in the backfield nearly at all times. Mm. Or at least working that pendulum, it kind of changed to 13 plus two, which I think Leinster... Uh, still operate with with two defenders in the backfield at all times covering a half of the pitch each generally um, but Ireland now obviously leaves their full back back there on his own a lot of the time and the wings have, have kind of kind of um, got to read the, the decision making of the opposition halfback so I asked Keith Earls about this um, he was obviously very honest about the, the Johnny May try at the start he said it was 100% his fault I think he was probably selling himself a little bit short there but um, just in terms of decision making he talked about Farrell and he said it was getting to the stage where we were well able to read 10s, but I think 10s are starting to read us a lot better now, us being wings. 
he says, um, he goes on to say, it's, it's massive for wingers now. We're trying to read body language. We're trying to close hard, also trying to stay back. It's all becoming a feel. It's not black and white anymore that I'm going to stay back because I'm a winger. We play high as a team, so I'm going to stay up. What about from your point of view, Brennan, as a coach? Like, I know every team has a different system, but it seems almost now, we used to always talk about the 13 being the most difficult place to defend. Yeah. A winger now, it's really difficult. Yeah, wings um, has changed, particularly the Irish system. So I think the... Um, the the different you mentioned Leinster playing a thirteen two, um, effectively Ireland, you know, a lot of time and a lot of time at the weekend there were there were fourteen in the front line and one in the backfield, which, you know, it was the perfect storm for England and Robbie Henshaw it was the, the worst case scenario for him, um, that's particularly because Earl's got knock early, so I think his mobility was affected, um, and they were just winning a lot of collisions, um, so the wings had to stay higher than they normally would, and then obviously our wings didn't really do a great job and Robbie missed a couple of, of high balls um, the way it is with Ireland is that <clears throat> our wings are expected to, to cover in behind and up up high and um, a lot of it's trying to read body languages as, as he said not just for the past that Andy or that own fire through a lot of it's for cross field kick options so effectively um, you're trying to bluff the opposition, opposition that you have that co- spacing behind covered which means um, that they obviously play to hand and then you're high and you can shut it down. Um, I think it's incredibly hard. I think, yeah, 13, 13 for sure has a lot... It's a lot easier for 13 now because wings are high anyway. Mm-hmm. So before, the reason it was hard for 13s was because the 13, the wing was off and you had to basically um, micromanage the attack until he, he arrived. And because he was arriving late, it was always a harder tackle for you and him. Um, but by them being planted up there now, um, in other teams, uh, being up high constantly, it does make it easier for 13. And then it's the 14 or the 11 who has to to make that read, whether to come in, which Keith tried to do. You know, Keith comes in, gets that ball, it's an intercept. Mm. You know, it's the greatest, which we saw last year. It's the greatest read of all time. Um, the, the, the reality was, it was a phenomenal pass from, from Owen Farrell. I don't think many 10s, Johnny could do it, but a lot of 10s wouldn't have the the balls or the accuracy to throw that pass. So him doing what he did would have actually made the defense attack attack narrower mm. and potentially then Tulagi runs into Connor, tread over. You know, we were on our back foot as it was. So um I think it's difficult. I think I think this week, given what we've seen from Scotland before, they they would like to try and keep the ball. So our wings would have a it won't be easy for them, but their decision making would be around um, you know, tackling the ball carrier rather than covering that space in behind. And I think Rob, and this is why Rob is so good and, and, and why people don't maybe appreciate, he's so integral to what we do, is that his ability to actually read the eight, the nine, read the 10, read the, if there's a kick in 13, and basically he pulls his wings on a piece of string. So they'd actually have to make less decisions when he's there because he makes it for them and he communicates with them. Whereas potentially at the weekend... Um, you know, a novice fullback, they were having to make more decisions based on their own um, reading of the situation than they will this weekend. Yeah. And I guess people have kind of raised their eyebrows. We haven't talked about Scotland yet, about uh, Kinghorn being dropped essentially after a hat trick. But that's probably one of the reasons because Sean Maitland's an experienced defender and there's so many different questions asked of a, of a back three these days that having that, I guess, proven ability at the top level makes a difference for them. Interesting as well. Uh, that they're going to be missing WP Nell at scrum time. I think that could be a really key area this weekend. We probably didn't see the best of the Irish scrum after a brilliant November where they absolutely destroyed Argentina and New Zealand. And um, I think that will be an area that Keane Healy certainly will be going after massively. Yeah, I'm gutted uh, Kinghorn isn't isn't playing. You know, uh, a joy to watch. No, he's brilliant. Go forward, but I think. Um, oh, you mean from Ireland's point of view? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, 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 um, I'm gutted because it, it basically lessens our chance of winning. You know, I thought yeah. I thought that we could have really targeted him. Um, he's very like Stockdale to a certain extent. Like, he's very good going forward. Um, but he's definitely a weak link. And, and Maitland's interesting. Um, there's a 10 that I, I speak to regularly. And um, he he was shocked at how tactically smart Maitland is in defence. Um, and how he is probably one of the best wingers in the, in the Six Nations um, in terms of giving fake information to the 10. In terms of where he's going to cover, um, so it's interesting that he's in this weekend, and you know that could negate potentially um, some of our, our cross field kicking opportunities because he is he is uh, exceptional in that area. Better, better than he's given credit for. 
Yeah, it's it's just cool that everyone's going to be looking at the backfield now because normally people just ignore <laughs> it and just look at the ball it. carries. Yeah. Rob Carney will never be more appreciated if he catches uh, the ball I, in the foot. Yeah, um, I caught up with, with Ron Agar for a coffee this week and, and tactical kicking, the, the type of kicking that Rog made famous, those wiper kicks, those kicks in behind, that was actually gone out of the game. Yeah. So no 10s were able to do that because there was no need because you had two people fixed on the 15s in the backfield. Um, but in actual fact, the latest trend is that those guys aren't fixed anymore. So there's massive space for them. Mm. But to be honest, not a lot of 10s don't have that skill set in their locker because they haven't ever had the opportunity to do it. Mm, um, yeah. So it's one, having the, seen it, and then it's two, having the skill set. But I think that that's going to be the next trend is that you're going to have a hell of a lot more kicking off 10 um, looking for those running kicks into the into the corner. Um, and actual fact, and sometimes to stay in, like obviously Farrell put two in in succession, one for Robbie, one to Robbie's right, uh, right side and then one to Robbie's left side. Um, or England did, you know, which basically made him cover the whole the whole field and obviously put him onto his wrong foot, and that led to an error or a kicking error. But um, I think that's the next change for teams: is the attacking kicks won't be the um, the grubber kicks. Um, there'll be more of those those kicks um, on the angle towards the corner flag from mm. both sides. Yeah, and it was interesting. I guess from Aaron's point of view, that they didn't really use that style of kicking game that often leads to pressure like Gary Ringrose had one grubber kick down yes. the left in the first half went through Johnny May's legs brilliant pressure situation all of a sudden but they, they let the, the valve off and you think back to even against the All Blacks when Bowen Barrett yeah. smashed into touch just resting it's huge up. and it would have got the crowd into the game the crowd yeah. were dead but we couldn't get out of our own half sorry the way we we didn't want it we didn't want to get out of our own half through the boot which I just gave England so much territory and, yeah. and uh, they were very comfortable could I take the conversation very briefly to a deplorable depth and talk about this idea of plan A versus plan B that has been doing the rounds? And um, we'll get Bernard, I think, to dispel the notion that there can really be a plan B. Like, um, I, I think people who are going on a bit like plans B and C have been playing too much football manager where you'd like change formation and everything will, will work out. Surely, Bernard, like there is a plan and you make amendments to that plan, but it's not a complete no, structural shift. No, absolutely not. And I think, listen, I think the, the only criticism or question mark around Ireland was, you know, why we why we didn't play territory. And that's not going off script. That's, like, we, we've we been one of the best teams in the comp, uh, or best teams in, in, in the world at actually exploiting that up, those opportunities to get what, what we call A-zone entries into their 22. I think we had three at the weekend. Um, now there's different ways of getting in there one you carry it and the other way is you, you, you kick it in there and you know you, you mentioned Gary Ringrose's kick um, we are the best team in the world in converting 22 entries into points um, but at the weekend we we didn't exploit that the space was there I think that'll be the big part of the review Joe, Joe will pick up um, you know some, some work rate issues and urgency issues and you know um, Simon Easterby will, will sort out our line out Greg Feek will demand more from our scrum um, we'll tighten up a few Seppi's launches but the big issue would be I think how how you know obviously the aerial contest that we didn't we didn't win those but I think that we didn't use the tools that are in our plan A which allow us play more in their half mm. and uh, that's not like this that's not a, a, a that's not a revolution for Ireland that's just executing what we already have. You know, what we did is we actually started, we played in our own half like we normally do in their half. Um, but it's, it's so much easier for the defence to, to snuff you out. And I think maybe, maybe there was a sense of, oh, we want to put on a show. We're number two in the world now. We're, we're, we're you know, we're Grand Slam winners. We, we want to do the stylish, uh, stylish way, but there's no need for that. You know, Ireland aren't going to go to the World Cup and win the World Cup playing the way the All Blacks do. Uh, I don't think I think what we need to do is, you know, just continue to um, execute our plan A and just do it well. That's the, you know, that's, I don't see a massive uh, change in how Ireland play by the time of the World Cup, um, but we got to do what we do and do it very well. Uh, is Conor Murray's form a concern at all, or is it something that I've just kind of formulated in my head, having watched him have a couple of off days in recent weeks? Yeah, there have been a couple of, I'd say, kind of half sluggish performances from him. He's clearly not back at his peak yet. Um, I think we're probably all focusing on a, a handful of errors and yeah. spraying that across the whole game. Went back through the game and 
a lot of his passing was high quality. There were a couple of inaccurate ones. That was actually across the team. Um, and then even you think of his kick, his first kick of the game where they can't get over the gain line. He decides to to do a bag, diagonal box kick into the right corner, just kind of scuffs off the inside of his boot. Very uncharacteristic. Defensively, there were a couple of bits, even with Keith Earls shooting out of the line. He probably didn't help him by being a couple of steps behind on his inside. You don't have that defender on your inside in your eye line uh, just to give you a bit more reassurance to, to shove out a little bit. So yeah, there are probably uncharacteristic elements to it I wouldn't be by any means thinking he's a guy you should be dropping out of the team as I heard a couple of people say um, <laughs> I still think he offers so much and, and there were lots of quality bits in his performance albeit he won't be happy on an individual level yeah I'm sure a few people will have a go off me for singling him out you could go through all 15 players or every yeah. player involved in fairness but just the fact that he is such a, a key player um, yeah, worth asking the question uh, we have to touch upon Scotland, obviously, in a few minutes' time, we'll be hearing from Stephen Ferris, who uh, was speaking to Murray after climbing Kilimanjaro for the IRFU Players Charitable Trust. Uh, the Scotland team, as you guys mentioned, four changes, uh, Sean Maitland and I suppose Johnny Gray's inclusion actually is quite important there. Um, it's difficult at times, I suppose, to read too much into a victory over Italy, but uh, Bernard, maybe starting with yourself, what can we expect from Scotland then this weekend? Uh, can they spring any kind of surprises the way yeah. England did against us? Yeah, they're very dangerous. I think um, like this is a really dangerous game for us hmm. uh, because I would, you know, because of what happened to us at the weekend and the nature of it. So. The way to beat Scotland is to physically dominate them, and, and uh, every game is won around that. But that's that's their Achilles' heel, you know. But um, and and Ireland can do it to them, or uh, Ireland, based on everything we've seen up to last Saturday, can do it to them. Um, but you wonder, you know, you wonder why we didn't perform to that level. And in fairness to them, I think they're, you know. They've got some boys in their pack. Like Johnny Gray is a, is a big boost for him. I really like uh, Gilchrist. Josh Strauss has come back in. You know he's physical. Um, and if we're if we're off defensively, like the reality is, we, we can see the four tries against England, which is worrying. Um, you know I think we can see that only uh, only Italy and Scotland can see the more points than us last year in the Six Nations. So um, well in November our defence was very good. You know we can see an average of a, I think a try a game. Um, if we get loose and if we don't um if we don't if we're not urgent and not slow the ball down, these guys will go from everywhere. They're well capable of scoring tries. Now they can see tries, but um I think this is a very dangerous game. Yeah. You know? And uh, I, I do think we win, but um the problem is you just you doubt you wonder why we weren't as, as dominant um as I said physically as we were or as we normally are last weekend. And you as well I do trust that they will get it right. Um but it's just puts a little bit of question mark in your head oh yeah certainly didn't mean to write Scotland off by any means with the question <laughs> but more so I think they do have a kind of an established way of playing they are dangerous like don't get in, in broken field and whatnot but um where okay I'll, I'll sort of change the question then where do they differ to us Murray in, in terms of how they operate well I think the I'd, I'd be shocked if Ireland don't win this game physically I think our pack is much stronger more cohesive I think you'll also see a really powerful combination of Aki and Farrell giving Sam Johnson a really big test like he's not a particularly small guy he's over 100 kg but I think they'll send a lot of traffic down his channel uh, test Finn Russell that way as well who is also a brave defender um, and again I think their aerial stuff would be better I think all those um, basic parts of the game would be much better for Ireland I think that's probably the areas where Scotland do struggle like their set piece attack like they're so inventive Gregor Townsend's got a great, great brain for that kind of stuff their counter attack with Stuart Hogg is obviously lethal he's unreal on the on the kick return and they're so good at creating space for him by just blocking off defenders kind of subtly they'll give him a bit of space to use his footwork and his really good vision and they're really um, in attack they're really good at preserving a bit of space in those 15 meter channels that's where they're going to come after Ireland without a doubt out on that edge defense which has been uh, maybe a bit of a softness for Ireland at times they're really good at giving Stuart Hogg and Finn Russell opportunities to create with that little bit of space on the edge his attacking kicking as well is obviously a strength so a big job for Rob Carney and the two wings, as we've mentioned, to to shore that up. But I really do think Ireland physically, I expect a performance kind of like the one at, ho at home against Wales last year, in which Chris Farrell played when they really bullied them. Um, short carries, really good carrying skills, good latching, and really getting into the 22 and, and converting. So uh, a kind of traditional Irish performance, I guess. Uh, there's a question here from Con Palmer, and he asks... 
This, uh, this is a fun question, actually. W- which three retired players would you put in the Irish team? He doesn't specify as to whether he means this weekend or not. I'll let you decide, Murray, maybe. Uh, and you have to go first because we're putting Bernard Bernard Jackman in the we'll spot here. <laughs> Bernard Jackman in hooker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a given. Uh, okay, given, given the circumstances. Let's say for this okay, weekend. Okay. Well, Paul O'Connell, obviously, in the second row. Yeah. He's going to call your line out. Brian O'Driscoll, I guess, at 13. Which yeah, it wouldn't be a bad option in fairness. Probably have to say. Missing. Um, I'm stumped for the third. Um, maybe a big, powerful winger. Tommy Bow, maybe? Yeah, that's a decent shout. I don't know what to think, Bernard. Yeah, I'll go with those. That's fair. That's <laughs> yeah. fair. I think Paul and Brian are, 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 are certain these. I think you have to, if you go back much further than them, it's it's too difficult. To, yeah, it's pound for say, pound and then, argument then. You know, potentially, yeah, potentially a Tommy um, or Trimble. I think that's, that's the type of winger you need this week. Yeah. You know, um, someone who's just going to basically. Uh, do the hard yards um, and uh, just build pressure, really. Yeah, more so than finish off stuff for sure. But it's it's going to be it's going to be won by our, our pack. And I, I think that that think the Wales game at home last year and their team would bring lo- massive line speed. And I remember speaking to Sean Edwards after, and they were so he was so frustrated because we just we just kept the ball, but we kept as you said really good body position, arriving in contact in twos and threes, and build and we just kept getting over the game line by by centimetres uh, until we scored and we built up a massive lead in that game and I think that's that's going to be the key as well that we we don't let Scotland get into the game potentially they're going to be hurting from and maybe a little bit shook at how they're defended at the end against Italy you know if we can start this game by by dominating the ball um, and making them do a, making them make a lot of tackles um, I think they'll crack I think defensively I, I agree with you I think I think their wings are good Hogg is obviously Class, um, a class act, a little bit fragile defensively. But I think Hugh Jones at thirteen um, isn't the best defender in the world, and and I think you know I think Bundy and Farrell um, can definitely do a job on on Sam Johnson. Him, you're certainly here to do a job as well, Bernard. Deviated away from the fantasy selection question. <laughs> Expertly that's for the pub. That's for the pub. <laughs> no, in fairness, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Con Palmer, you are, are the winner of behind the lines number two this week. We'll be in touch. With you, uh, one man who'll be absolutely fuming that he didn't figure in that conversation is the big man, Stephen Ferris. Yeah. Murray, you had Ferris. a chat. I forgot about him. He's yeah. not Sorry, give Ferris. Me that. No, <laughs> uh, thank God we got the interview done beforehand, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. caught up when he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro a couple of weeks ago with a couple of ex-players. So uh, pretty interesting experience for him. So just caught up and found out how it went. Well, Stephen, congrats on the uh, the amazing achievement, uh, reaching Uhuru Peak, 5,895 metres, I think. Uh, you described it as the toughest thing you've ever done on, on, your, on your Twitter page. Why exactly was it so tough? Murray, uh, well, thanks very much for that. It was very, very tough. I'm sure uh, Shane Byrne, Marcus Horn and Mike McCarthy would back that up. Um, I think it was, obviously the physical side of it was tough, having to walk between six and ten hours a day. You know, that was that was tough in the body. But it was more the mental side of things, the sleep deprivation, um, sharing a tent with Mike McCarthy, um, <laughs> and the the food as well. Obviously, quite tough. Me usually eating as much as I can to try and keep weight on and keep energy levels high. There was, you know, very limited kind of food that um, you know I'd be kind of used to eating. So yeah, you kind of factor all that in. You know, the sanitary obviously was was fairly poor. Um, we're trying to keep ourselves clean and um, trying not to get any infection, etc., in the way up the mountain. So, uh, just everything combined, along with the physical side of thing, and you know, the actual summit night, which was just hell on earth, to be quite honest with you. Um, it was it was really really tough. So factor it all in, Murray. I don't know how I made it to the top, but it did. <laughs> what about that summit night? Was so was was it the altitude? What affected you there? Um. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I got a bit of a sore head and you're short of breath. And um, there's, you know, factor that all into being pretty exhausted. You start walking at some at night at, at midnight and we reached the, the, the peak at 7.03 uh, a.m. And then as soon as we got to the top, we were expecting this beautiful sunrise. And, you know, you see all the photos and all the videos on the Internet. And uh, we got up there and it was freezing cold and Bit of a good bit of snow actually, uh, blizzard-like conditions at times. Um, so as soon as we kind of got up there, it was like, right lads, let's go, let's get down as quickly as possible. So we split up into a few groups and um, got down. And I think three and a half hours later, we got back down to the Kosovo camp. A couple of hours kept, 
uh, straight in. I passed out and a couple of hours kept, and then it was another four hours in the lashing rain down to another camp. So, you know, from midnight walking to probably, you know, six or seven o'clock in the evening the following day, walking with only a couple of hours sleep thrown into the middle of it, factoring in the altitude um, and, and the weather conditions, it was so, so tough. Um, but thankfully, 32 out of 32 made it, which was some achievement. Yeah, it's incredible. Look, there must have been a sense of unbelievable achievement as well at it. Yeah, you know, I think it was it was so tough um, getting to the top that, you know, you speak to people, that feeling of like euphoria and accomplishment when you get to the top and you're like, we've done it, you know, emotions break out. And, you know, a few people were, were, were there were tears running down their eyes. And, you know, I think because we all made it as well, there wasn't anybody that was left behind. Um, but for me and for Mike and I think, you know, Shane Byrne, guys who have a, a Marcus, guys who have achieved um, other things in, in life when it comes to big events or sporting events, etc. I don't think it hit us as much as it at a, as it hit the other the other folk who were with us. Um, and maybe that's it'll just take longer for us to process it and for it all to sink in. Uh, but like Murray, a couple of weeks ago, you know, it doesn't feel like I was at the top of Kilimanjaro at nearly twenty thousand feet. It, uh, you know, I just kind of when I got to the top, wanted to get back down as quickly as possible, and the same as the other three lads. So. Um, yeah, obviously it's amazing that I've achieved to get up to the top of the highest single standard mountain in the world. Uh, would I do it again? Absolutely not. <laughs> that's that's great to hear. Uh, but but it was obviously an aid of a brilliant cause. T- tell us a bit about why you actually did this, you and the guys. Yeah, well, um, I kind of got roped into it. To be honest with you, she and Burn picked up the phone to me. I'd be in conversation with them quite often and. Yeah, he rang me one day and he says, "Are we climbing mountains?" I said, "I've heard about this trip." I was like, "I'm not." It's during the Six Nations or whatever, and he says, "I'll get it sorted out. That we'll only miss one of the European Games, and we'll come back and get the date sorted." Are you in? Are you in? And I said, "Aki, yeah, sure. I'll I'll give it a lash, no problem." And before I knew it, it was the 14th of January, and I'm standing in Dublin Airport, ready to go to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So that's how it all kind of came about. Um, but it was all in need uh, and for a great cause in the RFP Charitable Trust for injured, uh, severely injured rugby players who, um, you know, might have you know suffered a serious injury and ended up paralysed or you know life-threatening injuries and require treatment uh, on a daily basis and year in year out. So, and um, the money raised, I think, between the group that I was with, 32 of us, I think there was close to 200,000 euro raised. Um, and they're looking to do the expedition again next year to try and raise more vital funds. But yeah, in a nutshell, Murray, it was just to to, to kind of use the four rugby lads' profiles to draw um, a big crowd to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and trying to raise as much money as possible for the RFP Charitable Trust. Yeah, because it is a really important cause. Obviously, you've had loads of injuries in rugby, and so has Mike and, and the other guys. But I guess when you see what happens to some people who've played rugby, it's quite eye-opening. Yeah, for sure. And you know, standing in the airport, and um, a couple of uh, the the people who avail of the RFU Charitable Trust and, and the donations that are given to uh, to that cause, and um, we're in the airport, and you know, one guy was in his wheelchair, um, waving us off, and you know, that's kind of the reality of it. You know, that's what can happen. You know, there's you don't really hear about it on a daily basis. You know, people getting injured or club rugby or school rugby, and, and obviously. I uh, I played in an Irish under 21s match at Donnybrook many many moons ago, and Matt Hampson was on the bench that day. Yeah. Um, who you know went on to fracture his his neck, and um, unfortunately is paralysed from the neck down. And um, I set up the Hamble Foundation and everything else. And you know I've seen firsthand how quickly things can change in life when it comes to uh, rugby players. So. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a great cause, and when you kind of think about it, all that hard work and the hard graft and the, the lack of sleep and the, the rubbish food, etc., it's all worth it when you see um, what's coming out of the back end of it. Yeah, absolutely. Fair play to you guys. One last question: How bad was it sharing a tent with Mike McCarthy, and how was he on the mountain? 
well, first of all, he's a hypochondriac. He had the two doctors wrapped around his little finger. Um, if, he, if, if he had a sore toe, he was getting paracetamol. If he had a sore head, he was getting anti-inflammatories. He, he couldn't sleep. He was getting uh, sleeping tablets. He was getting uh, anything you could think of, Murray. He was getting it. Uh, to try and get himself through the trip, but he was brilliant crack. Mike is, a, a, you know, an absolute diamond of a fella. Yeah. Um, he's out there, as we all know. He's different. He's not everybody's uh, cup of tea. But I tell you what, if he hadn't been on that trip, you know, it would have been a big struggle for us because he kept everybody going. He had his down moments as well. And you know, one of the camps we got the um, Lava Tar camp, which I think is four thousand six hundred meters, and he got up there and the altitude hit him pretty badly. Um, fellas fell asleep at, sitting at the lunch table and uh, he, he did, didn't feel well at all so you know he came through uh, a bit of hard times too on the mountain but sharing a tent with him flip he, he <laughs> keeps messaging me saying How, how's my camping buddy how's my tent buddy and I'm like mate I will never share a tent with you again when when, we, when he's lying beside you and he asks you to roll over because he's uh, going to get the baby baby wipes out to give himself a good once over oh, no. and the uh, and the tents and the zips are all zipped up and you know the smell that was coming from his body odor and everything else like it's it was hard to describe but uh yeah he was good crack he kept us all entertained for sure um and uh thankfully i will never ever ever be sharing a tent with mike mccarthy again even though he probably got me through the experience <laughs> fair play to him and i guess fair play to you all amazing um money raising and really great memories for you guys Stephen, thanks a million for chatting to us Cheers, Murray. Appreciate it, mate. Yeah, great stuff from the big man. Hopefully we'll uh, hear from him again very soon. Unbelievable effort from everybody involved there and some great fundraising done for the IRFU Charitable Trust. Um, Italy host Wales this weekend. England host France the following day on the Sunday. Uh, Let's actually just look at that France-Wales game as a means of previewing those two games uh, if you don't mind because we're kind of caught for time we've a good bit more to chat about with the women's the women's sevens and the twenties um there were so many parallels between wales win in paris and ireland's win in paris despite them being two very aesthetically different games i thought just in terms of i suppose the way that wales didn't strike me as being anywhere near their best or even the way they were operating uh, throughout november and yet they escape paris with a victory and it's the type of victory that could really build momentum towards uh, a championship tilt or even a championship victory. Mm. Yeah, well, on the flip side of that, you have France absolutely collapsing and <laughs> in a characteristic fashion, I guess. Like the first half from them was superb, 16 nil up. Even tactically, like they were kicking so intelligently. Their offloading was done at the right time when there was a bit of momentum into their attack. Uh, really good support play, clearing out rocks, keeping their wits. Um, and reading the defence superbly for, for a couple of fantastic tries. And and you, I was, at halftime, I was kind of thinking, geez, France are real contenders in this championship. They look really good. Pick Moses back at his best, carrying the ball. Uh, Damien Peno looks really good. Addition, even Atoria playing at seven out of position was excellent. And then it came, it came the kind of, almost in hindsight, inevitable collapse. And, and they handed, I guess, Wales a couple of opportunities. Wales deserve credit. Their defence obviously put... The French under pressure and even you talk about attacking kicks that kick in behind and Uge's got a turn Robbie Henshaw in fairness did well with the one of those he had to handle did, yeah. against England um, but Van Mahina's pass was I don't know even in the background you could hear Paul O'Connor kind of going oh <laughs> it was it was comical and it was brilliant at the same time not brilliant to your French but just su- such a incredibly poor way to to, to lose go about losing a game um, and yeah it was just disappointing from, from that point of view yeah Wales do have a massive morale boost in that and they've had a great week now in Nice they spent a week over there in camp it looks like they had a, a fun time a lot of changes for the Italy game so everyone's going to be f- very fresh for, for round three so yeah it could, it could tee them up nicely um, having said that I didn't think they were great in the first half off the back of a pretty good November yeah but their their November was built on on defence um, and uh, their attacking game still hasn't come to fruition but what they do rely on is is moments of of magic normally from George North to be honest he's just such a a potent try scoring weapon for them um, and obviously they've got guys like you know Jonathan Davies who's, who's now captain this weekend but I think the, the way the nature to win so no one's going to get carried away 
Um, the fact that they were they were able to do their warm weather camp this week, I mean, and, and Gats is brilliant at kind of organising a schedule. They'll go to Italy, um, everybody's getting a run, you know, um, and that feel-good factor from what, what we have to imagine will be a win in Italy, having won your first two away from home, everybody haven't had a taste of championship. It won't just... It won't just create goodwill and, 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 and good team spirit for this Six Nations. It'll lead all the way into the World Cup then because no one can say they haven't had a, a fair crack at it. And um, I think they're going to be dangerous. Obviously, you know, we got to hope they beat England. Um, and, you know, I think I think that they things are shaping up really well for them. The regions might be struggling, but there's some quality players in in that Welsh 30-man 30 30 man squad. And, um, you know, Josh Adams is looking... Like a, a proper international winger, you know, he his break was key for to basically, you know, uh, start to turn the game. He's very good in the air. You know, John Holmes is getting a. He was brought into the Welsh squad in November, and we only saw a little bit of him, but he's been good for Leicester. Jordan rates him. He's getting a chance on the right wing this weekend, and you know, they've got three very good scrum halves. Um, and Wayne Wright from the Dragons is is making a Six Nations debut, and he's a he's a quality player. So Wales are in a, in a really good spot, and um, it's interesting. I just look back at the stats. The last three times Wales played. Italy and Rome, the average score at halftime is 26-26. The average second half score was 94-10 to Wales. <laughs> um, so, you know, it probably, if you look at the bench, he's got Garrett Davies on the bench, Ross Moriarty, Alan Wynne-Jones, um, Garrett Anscombe. If, for whatever reason, it did start to go pear-shaped, I think it, Wales, given given how they finish games and how fit they are, they'll get out of Italy with with a bonus point anyway. Yeah, I'm excited to see the back row. Aaron Wainwright, a guy you would have worked with, really exciting player, and Thomas Young, who's been excellent for Wasps, even as they've been struggling, get chances in flanker. It was also interesting that Gareth Anscombe at 10 didn't go particularly well, and Dan Bigger comes on and sort of settles things, and I think you'll probably see him take over now for the rest of the championship. He just has that experience. While Anscombe is a really exciting player and has beautiful attacking, kicking, things like that, Bigger just seems solid, doesn't he? Yeah, Bigger's, Bigger's obviously world-class. I think... Um, Anscombe, I, I like Anscombe, um, but obviously away from home in the rain, uh, your pack not dominant. It was a difficult um, you know, game for him at 10. Bigger was perfect to come on for him. I think it's a nice nice balance now. You can have Anscombe as a bit like Joey Carberry. He can play 10, 15. You know, if the game um, needs to be changed up, he has a different skill set than, than someone like Dan Bigger, but Dan Bigger gives you the, the security, the game management, the leadership. Um, that's confirmed and probably you know low risk, but... But high reward for uh, for Warren Gatlin's coaches. Yeah, they uh, certainly have a bit of momentum now. We'll have to see how they uh, go throughout the tournament. Uh, Murray, a bit of a chastening defeat in the end for the Irish women's team um, at home to England as well. And kind of difficult nowhere to start with that one, to be totally honest. Uh, we kind of knew going into the game, at least on paper, that there is a bit of a gulf in class there, but... I suppose it's always when you see it so evidently then in front of you, it's uh, it was just disappointing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it highlights again what we probably knew, that there's two tiers in the Women's Six Nations now. England and France are quite a distance ahead. I would say that game is going to be superb. Um, but Ireland just didn't seem competitive at all the whole way through. And again, it underlines some of the kind of background issues. Like the French women have a, a really good competitive league, as do the English with the Tyrrells Premiership. Whereas the women's AAL, speak to any any of the Ireland internationals that are involved, they'll tell you the quality is not good enough and it's not good enough preparation for, for Test Rugby. Um, Adam Griggs has mentioned that as well, like on the record with journalists. So that's a big area for the RFU. They've talked about improving that, improving the number of players getting into league, but that has to happen very quickly, I think, for, for them to be competitive at all. Um, and you just hope that Ireland don't settle into a position where it's kind of acceptable that, okay, we'll just win two or three fixtures a year and, and that's okay. Um, you know, back in 2014, getting to a World Cup semi-final, obviously off the back of a Grand Slam as well, had set really good expectations for Irish rugby and seems to have regressed a little bit. There was obviously that really tough period with Tom Tierney in charge where where things just didn't go well and the Home World Cup was really damaging mentally. Um but those are definitely issues in the background. The players coming into the, the squad haven't been playing a high enough standard outside outside Ireland uh, camps as well. And I think you see it in just how maybe the game understanding from Ireland at times was poor. Um, they're starting to get more girls now who have played the game from a younger age. And I think that makes a big difference because just your decision-making on the pitch, um, everything, just reading different pictures defensively, even in attack, making decisions. You saw some of the, the backfield defence probably are on the edge, just poor decisions there. Um, and that element of getting girls playing younger as well will come through. But 
I guess it's just worrying that that's a long-term thing, really. Yeah, and I suppose even in the short to medium term, when you look at England handing out 28 professional contracts, the fear there is that the gulf that already exists in what we'll call a two-tier Six Nations could actually become, I don't know, what's bigger than the gulf? A fissure? Uh, but it will widen, and, and they, the two top teams could pull further away, certainly in the next sort of five, six years. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, that is a worry, and... I guess that's where the sport is. Like one side of it's becoming professional now, and the other is firmly rooted as a as an amateur um, part of the game. But I guess more positively, the, the seven Irish women sevens had a had a great weekend last weekend, and I guess that again points to another issue for Irish yeah. rugby: fifteens versus sevens. It is very much kind of split. Although they talk about the program all being one, it's clear that sevens drags off a little bit that resource. Yeah. Um, Although there, if you did say that they those those players who played in Sydney were going to be available for the rest of the championship but it's doubtful they'll be able to play this weekend I haven't seen a team but obviously travel back etc but we lacked any or not we lacked the kind of that X factor that, that we saw in Sydney mm. um, you know so real speed evasion um, and you know I think obviously England will have a good sevens team but I think probably the only way we have of, of keeping up um, with England and France I would say is obviously to you know, to try and improve the standard of club game, but to try and find a way where we can utilise the sevens players in our system. And it's not always easy, um, but definitely they, you know, based on what I saw at the weekend, or at the weekend from Sydney, there's definitely players in there in terms of athleticism, you know, who could yeah boost the team that we saw Friday night. Well, Amy Lee Murphy was the top try scorer, like the quickest woman in Irish rugby. She is absolutely lethal. You would imagine her being on the yeah. wing and getting some good opportunities. Eve Higgins, 19-year-old playmaker in sevens, would be the 15, uh, if she was in 15s, would be the 10 long-term. That would be the goal to build her into that. But she's been playing sevens, so it's very different to, to come back in and, and try and get involved in a, in a 15s camp again and you have those sevens habits even Baven Parsons the 17 year old now who obviously made made a debut in November she's with the sevens now and I guess that's your young star out wide as well so it's always going to be the question where where is the resource going to go and where are those players when the pool isn't that big going to go so um, that's an interesting one but yeah congrats to the sevens girls they got into the semi-final for, for the first time ever on the series probably been a while coming and it's great to hit that marker especially without a couple of experienced players there in the squad. Um, and they finished fourth. I think they would have been disappointed to, to not finish a bit stronger. Semi-final against Australia looked like maybe that belief level wasn't quite there. Um, only when they kind of chased the game did it look like, wow, we're actually well able to compete here. But a- another step of progress for them, and that's really positive. Absolutely. And great to see Ali Miller back on the wing as well for the 15s after such a tough injury uh, about a year ago. Um, the 20s then, uh, probably a bit of an understated victory given how impressive it was Bernard you uh, saw plenty of that yeah I was down there I think um, listen it was hard to see on paper Ireland competing with England um, given the you know the, the experience these guys have had in the in the Gallagher Premiership and probably again you know I came back the road up, I came back up the road from Cork having seen that and it probably made me more confident that we're going to do the job on Saturday you know this, this Gallagher Premiership was rubbish you know it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter we've guys who who barely played UBL and they're able to uh, dominate um, guys like you know Ted Hill etc but uh, for me it was just you know an unbelievable team effort you know I think England played um, really well England played as individuals to a certain extent and completely lost the plot you know when they went behind uh, with 20 minutes to go um, and Ireland just seemed to you know manage the game really well um, you know really gritty performance got the crowd behind them got momentum and uh, listen Ireland has some good individuals I thought the back row were standing I thought Hodness you know if you want to if any province needs a ball carrier um, you know ASAP I know Munster um, yeah I think we'll keep Munster, him if you don't mind Munster <laughs> rate him but uh, he he looks like um, you know he's he's going to be something special uh, we know Scott Penny he's obviously done it for Leinster I thought Maloney you know the old Belvedere six and as a combination the, the three of those were excellent um, and I thought Harry Byrne you know I, I watched him last year and you could see he had um, he had talent but he looks like he's matured you know, massively um, over over the off season, and um, obviously working with his brother, working with Johnny, working with Felipe. Um, you know, he's got a he's got some good role models there. Yeah, it's some list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Of well, mentors. speaking of Munster, 
like it's very exciting for them as a province that so many of their particularly their backs yeah. like we go, we got questions many times this season about Munster why aren't they producing players you got Jake Flannery excelling uh, like Connor Phillips started Jonathan Wren on the other wing you had Sean French coming on off the bench and making a really good impact so it's really exciting for them to see such a good crop of, of their players coming through as well as guys, as you mentioned, Hodnett and, and Witcherly up front making making an impact. So I think that's a really exciting element of it. Fair play to Noel McNamara and his coaches because yeah. it's tough to get that kind of cohesive performance at under-20s level when um, guys haven't got a lot of familiarity with each other. They would have played age grade together and stuff, but it doesn't often come together in that... Um, that strong a team performance the the pre the pre or post Christmas camps were really important for them they played a couple of good games and now it's an exciting time they go away to Scotland um, and you know you pick up another win and suddenly there's a bit of momentum there so it's a really promising group there's even a couple under 19 guys like Thomas Clarkson the tight head is He's got another year at this level and he, he did really well. Um, so, yeah, exciting times. Yeah, exciting times for Cork rugby as well. A strong Cork tinge to that <laughs> monster. Bias. Uh, yeah, well, actually, but even to narrow that down a small bit, how about West Cork at the moment with uh, Fineen Wishley doing the job at senior and then his brother, yeah. uh, Josh, and uh, John Hodnett is Ross Carberry as well. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, Sonic Kilty RFC. Yeah. And, like, that's another element of it. Like, you mentioned Maloney. I thought he's brilliant. Mm. He's come from a tie. Like, that's right. Uh, so those clubs, players are are starting to push through as well. Unfortunately for Craig Casey, we should mention that Scrum Half has picked up an injury yeah. and he's been really unlucky. It doesn't look like it's going to be as bad as feared, I think, was the latest we'd heard this afternoon. Well, that's fantastic of the case because he was he was great. I loved his kind of back chat as well. When he went down and the English fellow was like, get up. And he's like, what are you saying? And he was so snappy with his forwards. He was kind of telling him to win the race around the corner. A really demanding and lovely pass as well. So yeah. it'd be great to see him back soon. Yep. Let's see how they get on at the weekend and uh, let's see how everybody gets on at the weekend because I have to ask you very briefly, gents, for your predictions in the, uh, well, let's call it the men's senior Six Nations, uh, Italy and Wales, Murray. Yeah, Wales. Wales. Uh, England and France, Murray. Yeah, England. I'd say we're going to have the same here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking to wrap it up fairly quickly, so it'll yeah. be good. It'll be great. Same with you, Bernard. Yeah, England. And uh, ourselves in Merrifield. Yeah, I think Ireland will win with a really strong performance. Yeah, Ireland wow. with, a, with a bonus point. Super. Fair play to you, lads. Bernard, thanks a million for joining us. No, you're welcome. In you and McKenna's place. Nah, I'm only joking. <laughs> it's been great to have you here. And Murray, thanks as always. Thank you. Uh, the 42 Rugby Weekly is brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Thanks very much for joining us. And thanks for your questions as well this week. Sorry we didn't get around to more of them. We were a bit caught for time. Uh, enjoy the rugby over the weekend and we will catch you this time next week. Until then, take it easy. 